Welcome to the Conscious Classroom Podcast, where we're exploring tools and perspectives that support educators and anyone who works with teens to create more conscious, supportive, and enriching learning environments. I'm your host, Amy Edelstein, and I'll be sharing transformative insights and easy-to-implement classroom supports that are all drawn from mindful awareness and systems thinking. The themes we'll discuss are designed to improve your own joy and fulfillment in your work and increase your impact on the world we share. Let's get on with this next episode. Hello, welcome to this session of The Conscious Classroom. My name is Amy Edelstein and I'm your host. In this session, I'd like to do something a little bit different. The great Buddhist master Thich Nhat Hanh, Vietnamese monk, beloved international teacher, worldwide figure, author of a hundred books, founder of monasteries and affiliated practice centers around the world, passed away at the ripe age of 95, And I'd like to take this episode and this moment to pause, to offer our respect, to consider his impact and his influence, and to introduce many of you who may not be aware of his profound influence on our understanding of applied mindfulness or to use a term that he coined, engaged Buddhism, could mean. Thich Nhat Hanh was Vietnamese. He was ordained at the age of 16 and led a life of really deeply committed practice. But the circumstances of his birth and his existence in the middle of growing up during the Vietnam War forced him to consider deeply the conditions of our world right today and the ways that a powerful practice of mindfulness could work in the world as a force of peace, as a force of nonviolence, as a force of unification, and as a force of understanding the universality of human aggression, human pain, human suffering, human inability to communicate, human hurt. And he followed his own profound care and concern and compassion and also his profound intuition to reach into the social world and the political world and the environmental movement as a Buddhist monk. For us these days, the idea of engaged Buddhism doesn't feel very radical. At the time, he was really going against the grain. And in his tradition and in Buddhism come west in the 
early decades of you know the the wave of Buddhism that, that and and Hinduism that took hold in America in the 50s and the 60s with the Beat Generation and then the hippie movement. That movement really looked at meditation as a way to retreat from the world, to withdraw from the world, to focus inward and understand the nature of mind in order to free oneself of one's own neurosis and suffering and aggression. But Thich Nhat Hanh couldn't help but engage in a secular way with the world around him. He met with Dr. Martin Luther King. He met with the great monk Thomas Merton who had written conjectures of a guilty bystander about the suffering that he was seeing in the world, including the suffering of the Vietnam War. He also met with the Dalai Lama, very engaged uh, leaders of the time. And they found in Thich Han a quiet, very well-educated individual who not only studied in his home country, he also studied at Princeton. And they found an individual in Titnat Han who was so disarmingly gentle and quiet and thoughtful that he could almost easily be overlooked And yet in his gentleness and quietness, what you met in this individual was, was someone with such profound penetration and understanding of the pain of human suffering, the pain of the heart, and the way through that that it seemed as if almost nothing could stop him. His influence is one, in some ways also, that's somewhat invisible. It's like when water nourishes a field and, and moistens the soil. You come back after the rain, you don't see the water anymore. You see the soil coming alive. You see it plumping up with moisture, nutrients. And then you see that soil beginning to grow, all the little seedlings in their rows, all the seeds that were planted begin to sprout, all the seedlings start blowing in the breeze. They grow tall, they bear fruit. You don't really remember that there was this light spring rain that prepared the soil. And in some ways, Titnat Ham was very much like that. He was a proponent of slow, mindful walking, 
especially in response to angry states of mind, to lack of communication between people. He really recommended, and, and his retreats were, were um, many sessions were devoted to mindful walking so that we had an activity to keep us in the present. Lifting the foot, placing the foot, being present for the movement, not needing any special cushion, any special posture, any special hall. He encouraged anyone who came on his retreats to practice mindful cutting vegetables, mindful washing dishes, mindful walking to work, so that the quality of our attention and the immediacy of our awareness was something that could not be separated from everyday secular life. Because his mission was to create a world of emissaries of compassion to create people who were aware who could listen deeply who could hear another he was one of the first in the Buddhist world to talk about engaged listening active listening and in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there were many different groups that picked up on this idea of conscious, commu conscious communication and conscious listening, compassionate listening. But he was really one of the forerunners where he leaned in and he asked his practitioners to be able to be with another with no judgment. Even if what they're saying is harsh, even if what they're saying is wrong, even if what they're saying is righteous, even if what they're saying is vindictive. Because he said, when you can listen deeply without judgment, the other person felt heard. And when that person feels heard and met, their heart can soften, their heart can open. And when there's an open heart, then there's the possibility for connection for change, for a meeting, for transformation. And he was one who knew a lot about that. You could think that a monk living in a monastery wouldn't have to deal with some of the conflicts that we deal with, with families, with co-workers, with political parties we disagree with. You know, and of course, he would hear about those things from his students. But early on, in the 60s, when he was calling for an end to the Vietnam War, touring the United States, and trying to get through to Defense Secretary McNamara to stop bombing Vietnam, he was dealing firsthand with sides that couldn't listen to each other, 
sides that were so convinced of the evilness of the other that they were willing to kill. And he refused to take sides against the North Vietnamese in favor of the South Vietnamese. And both sides uh, put a lot, were very frustrated, put a lot of pressure on him and condemned him. And the reason why they condemned him is because in our world we're used to an us and a them. And what he saw was he saw beyond the separation. This is why his work may be so relevant to our times right now, where more and more we can barely listen to each other. His practice of being mindful, using the breath, using walking to calm our minds, to see our own hatred, to see our own anger until we can soften so that then we can go and listen to another and be present and hear without judgment, hear past the harshness and the aim to hurt and hear that human heart that is also suffering and trapped and frightened and aggressive. It's in that listening and in that not taking sides that he felt that true, the true fruits of meditation could come into the world. He was also one of the few teachers of, of these times, until very recently, who created a space for families and for children um, at his monastery, uh, sorry, his center in southwestern France, uh, which is called Plum Village. It's a home for monastics, uh, Vietnamese and also European, American, Canadian. But he didn't separate the monastic community fully from the family community, the lay community. And he set up these small villages within this center that's in the in rural France. Um, it's meant to be very beautiful. I've never been there, but uh, it's very peaceful. Where and set up very simple rules for families to come together. Children would have programs, but their parents would stay with them, be responsible for them. Programs for teenagers, also with the parents there. Uh, the teenagers would have their own day programs, but they would stay with their parents. And he created a way for families to be engaged in mindful awareness so that it wasn't something that the parents went off and did separate from family life. And it wasn't something that the kids went off and did that the parents weren't involved with. There are very few other centers that even thought of doing that. 
at the time when he did. And now that there's more and more movement to bring different contemplative practices into schools and into families, we still see that they're, they're often compartmentalized. So you can see his very unusual way of making mindful awareness a secular way of being present, a foundation for a life well lived and a foundation to deal with, to cure, to alleviate suffering, mental illness, hardship. He addressed digital addiction, substance addiction. He was unafraid of really touching into the reality of the issues that people often kept behind closed doors, especially when going on retreat. Now, in subsequent years with, you know, much more understanding of trauma, there are different approaches to trauma and mindfulness, whereas he encouraged individuals to sit and to um, be with their pain, be with their fear, be with their suffering, and then be able to talk to other members of the program they might be on or the, the facilitators of the program that they were on. There's been a lot of innovative work since about how to be delicate around trauma. But he really did begin the idea of allowing the retreat setting to be one of healing and restoration. And I think that in the conscious classroom, as we think about what we're trying to do with our students, how we're trying to build a community of caring, of listening, of seeing one another with, res with deep respect, deep respect for their humanity, for their presence in the world, for their being on the earth. Having discrimination about right and wrong and skillful speech and unskillful speech and prejudice. And, but at the same time, being able to listen to another without vilifying them, to be able to listen past the difference. Because our classrooms are communities. We may have children whose families believe in very different things, but we have to create community in our classroom. We have to see beyond difference and support everybody's growth. And I think that Titnat Han has tremendous value. And if you haven't had a chance to read any of the 75 books that he wrote in English or listen to some of his talks. 
Let yourself listen past the simplicity, past the sense of this delicate, gentle delivery, so that you hear the power, the flexibility, the pliability, and the unbelievable strength that made this very unassuming character into an international figure whose legacy has touched millions of us, even those of us who don't really know who he is, never met him, never did one of his retreats, never came across any of his quotes. We are still even by listening to a podcast like this, influenced and owe him our profound gratitude and respect for being able to bring the unbelievable transformative quality and potential of the simplest mindfulness practice into every area of our lives. I'd like to close with a few quotes from Thich Nhat Hanh so you can hear the simplicity, the depth, and what he's really pointing to. This is from his book, The Heart of the Buddhist Teachings, Transforming Suffering into Peace, Joy, and Liberation. He said, letting go gives us freedom. And freedom is the only condition for happiness. If in our heart we still cling to anything, anger, anxiety, or possessions, we cannot be free. This is another very applicable quote for us. When you plant lettuce, if it does not grow well, you don't blame the lettuce. You look for reasons it's not doing well. It may need fertilizer or more water or less sun. You never blame the lettuce. Yet if we have problems with our friends or family, we blame the other person. But if we know how to take care of them, they will grow well like the lettuce. Blaming has no positive effect at all nor does trying to persuade using reason and argument. That's my experience. No blame, no reasoning, no argument, just understanding. If you understand and you show that you understand, you can love and the situation will change. And we'll end with this one. Waking up this morning, I smile. 24 brand new hours are before me. I vow to live fully in each moment and to look at all beings with eyes of compassion. Let's extend a moment of silence, offering up our own presence, contemplation, open-heartedness, intention 
an effort to be present, to be available, to be compassionate, to be discerning, and to be committed to profoundly changing our world through the way we interact with ourselves, with our families, with our colleagues, with the world around us. Thank you for sharing the reflection of such a beautiful life, Tidnat Han, on the power of presence, mindfulness, love, and compassion. I wish you all wellness and fullness, and may you also find a community, a practice for your family, where you can be deeply present with one another and feel deeply heard and feel deeply loved. Thank you for listening to The Conscious Classroom. I'm your host, Amy Edelstein. Please check out the show notes on innerstrengthfoundation.net for links and more information. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend and pass the love on. See you next time.